Welcome to the On the Air podcast, a companion to On the Air magazine, a new bi-monthly magazine from ARRL for beginner to intermediate ham radio licensees. I'm your host and the editor of On the Air magazine, Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY. Every month, the On the Air podcast extends material found in On the Air magazine to help you learn about the many things the ham radio service and hobby has to offer. February 2020, Hints from the Premier Issue The buzz and excitement about the premier issue of On the Air, January-February 2020, is still going, so we're going to take this episode to dive a little deeper into some of the material found in the issue. In the January-February 2020 issue of On the Air, we gave you a project build article called Extend Your Handheld's Range with a Simple Ground Plane Antenna. This is one of the simplest antennas you can build. It's made out of some 14-gauge electrical house wire and a female SO239 chassis mount coaxial connector. To make the antenna, you cut the wire into three pieces that are the appropriate length for the frequency that you want to get on, and then you solder those lengths of wire to the coaxial connector. We gave you some step-by-step instructions with pictures that illustrate the steps. Step 1 gives you some help on how to cut the lengths of wire that you need to make the antenna. Step 2 shows you how and where to place the wires that will make the radials of the antenna. The radials are the antenna's ground return that completes the circuit and gives the RF energy a path back to your radio. And in Step 3, we show you how and where to place the element wire into that SO239 coaxial connector. The radiating element is the center conductor of an antenna. Steps 2 and 3 require some soldering. And for this project, you're soldering some relatively small pieces that can be tricky to work with on their own, never mind when you're applying hot solder to them. There are times when building any kind of project when we wish we had another set of hands to hold materials steady while we work on them. In fact, there are many helper tools out there, often known as third hands, fixtures, or jigs that you can buy to help yourself hold materials or components in place while you do delicate work on them. The photos in steps two and three of this article show a third hand tool that we sort of snuck in there. It's made out of one piece of wood and two short lengths of 14 gauge wire. It's very simple. You can make it yourself in about 15 minutes and it will hold that SO239 coax connector steady while you're soldering the wires onto it. So what this is, is a short length of 2x4, standing on one of its narrow lengths. A hole just the size of the connector has been drilled in about an inch from the end to make a seat for the connector. A 5 eighths drill bit will get the job done here. You can plop the connector right into that hole and it won't budge while you're working on it. You can also drill through the thickness of the wood and thread a piece of the 14-gauge wire through the hole to make wire arms that can wrap around the wires you need to solder to the connector and hold them in place while you do the job. You can get instructions for building this third-hand tool on the On the Air blog at arrl.org slash ota hyphen blog. While we're on the subject of soldering the wires for this ground plane antenna project, ARRL Senior Lab Engineer Zach Lau, W1VT, pointed out that during Step 3, 
when you're soldering the element wire into the center pin of the SO239 coax connector, you need to be careful not to melt the plastic that's inside the connector. That plastic is there to act as an insulator between the center pin and the body of the connector. Zach recommends covering the plastic with a small piece of foil or wet cloth to help keep it from melting. Moving on to the January-February 2020 issue's other Project Build article, One Wire, Many Bands, we have another super simple antenna, a wire antenna, known as a random-length dipole, that will work on several HF, or high-frequency, bands. Here's some background information from QST Editor-in-Chief and on-the-air Senior Editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Steve says the reason we can use this antenna on several different bands without worrying about how long the wires are is the type of feed line we're using to carry the RF energy between your radio and your antenna. The feed line for this antenna is windowed line, which looks like a thin strip of brown plastic ribbon with windows cut into it. Each edge of the ribbon has a wire encased in it. Windowed line has very low energy loss, even when the standing wave ratio, or SWR, is high. And if you need an explanation of SWR, check page 17 of the January-February issue. The SWR of this antenna will change on every frequency you use it on. Even if the SWR is quite high at times, it won't matter, at least as far as the antenna's feed line is concerned thanks to the fact that windowed line has very low losses. The secret to the low loss is in the fact that windowed line is electrically balanced, which means that the energy fields generated by the currents in the wires interact and cancel each other. As a result, very little energy escapes into the surrounding area. In coaxial cable, another popular type of feed line, the fields are not balanced, which means there is little cancellation taking place to reduce loss. That's why coax is called an unbalanced feed line. So, if balanced line is so great, why don't we use it for all our antenna connections? Good question. Steve, WB8IMY, says balanced feed lines have a few disadvantages. First, unlike coaxial cable, you can't just install a balanced feed line wherever you want. It doesn't like being twisted, folded back onto itself, or coiled. Second, you can't bury balanced line without going through some elaborate steps that no sane individual wants to undertake. And third, balanced line must be kept a few inches away from large pieces of metal. Clearly, balanced line isn't great for all applications. But for the antenna we're describing in this article one that can cause high SWR in the feed line. Balanced line is not only great, it's ideal. Moving on to one of the issue's other feature articles, a look at public service, it's time to talk a little bit about one of the main reasons for ham radio's existence, being of service to our communities. I spent some time talking to Brenda Plummer, KD9GDX, a ham who's been involved with Ham Radio Public Service for several years, about her experiences and what advice she could offer to hams who want to get into public service. Here's what Brenda had to say. I'm talking with Brenda Plummer, KD9GDX of Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
Brenda, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, absolutely. I enjoy promoting my hobby. <laughs> this is a, a wonderful opportunity to do this. So when did you get licensed? Um, April of 2016. Oh, so you're a relatively new ham. It'll be almost four yes. years. And what license class do you currently hold? I am a general. So how did you first get involved in public service ham radio? I belong to a club here in my town, and we're lucky enough to have the, let us see, district emergency coordinator is one of the members at our club. There was an event coming up, and they needed volunteers. We had no idea what it was. It was a day we had available and said, you know, can you explain a little bit? And then we said, okay, well, we'll join. We'll help you out with that one. So on that particular event, my husband and I did partner up because neither one of us knew what we were doing. And that way, if somebody didn't, if one of us didn't hear something, the other one would. So, but after that, I've done my, uh, all my stations by myself since then. What kind of event did that end up being? That was a fundraiser walk. I don't recall which one, maybe a breast cancer walk or a March of Dimes walk. It was a um, very large community event in the downtown of the city. I think we probably had somewhere around 12 to 15 hams stationed throughout the road. Do you remember what you were tasked with for that event? Uh, I was just one of the people on a corner. It was an intersection where people could possibly go the wrong direction and where there was a little bit of traffic. And although we don't stop traffic, if we can help it, at least we can hold back the runners and walkers so that they're they're safe. We want to make sure everyone is kept safe at the events. And so that was your first event. Yes. And how many events would you say you've done since then? I probably do, I'm thinking maybe four a year since then. We work well with another county to the west of us, and they have a, I believe it's a state park, and there's a lot of uh, races that are run there in the woods, and we help out with those quite often. And are there different uh, tasks that you're assigned at these different events? Do you find yourself doing different things from event to event or similar things? For the most part, similar. At the last event, I was point of contact, which follows around. You're kind of the go-between between the event coordinator and the ham radio. So when there's a question, when a, a message or a question comes through, somebody needs some supplies somewhere, or there's a question on uh, maybe a route change or a corner or something like that, the point of contact is the one who goes to the event coordinator and asks them and relays it back to the hands, who relays it back then to the people out in the on the field. How much training, if any, had you done before participating in your first public service activity? In the first public service um, event, I did not have any training. We hadn't even been to an event and seen what the hands did. But that particular one, they held a meeting before it. We just met at McDonald's for breakfast before the event, went over the routes, the maps, the tactical names, the shifts. And even though everybody's being assigned, there's the chance you'll be reassigned if someone's radio won't reach from a certain point uh, on the route. So that helped because we were able to ask questions then. Quite a few of them now, we do all of our prepping uh, via emails before the event. So you can ask your questions if you don't know anything. Maps are emailed out. The roster is emailed out. The frequencies that you're going to use during the event, that's all sent to you so you can program your radio in advance. You don't have to worry about getting there the day of and trying to remember how to program your radio or anything like that. So zero training before that, but a lot of, um, I think we've kind of changed how we do it so we don't do it all last minute. 
Is there anything that you wish you had known when you first got involved? Um, that's that's a, a perfect question for you to ask me because I wish I had known a lot more. And so, therefore, I offer, every time there's an event coming up, I offer on the, the evening nets on the radio. I offer at the club meetings. Anyone who's interested, come join me for part of my shift. You don't have to do the whole thing, but come and sit with me because you can see how what we do. You can see the equipment I bring with me, even if it's just an umbrella and a chair, because that might not be something you would think of. But come sit with me, see what we do. And then the next time when something comes up, these people are not so afraid of volunteering because it's not a complete unknown to them. So I wish I had had that opportunity beforehand, so therefore I do that now for every event. And the last event I did, I actually had three um, people who, um, they offered one, ended up with a schedule conflict, but two people who did come out and go around with me, and then I passed them off to others so they could see all the different jobs that are done during a public service event. Do you have any advice for new hams who want to be involved in public service or maybe folks who have been hams for a long time but have never done public service? Um, Number one would be just what I just said. Find someone that's already doing it and go work with them. Don't think you have to do it yourself on the first try. Another one, um, if you go onto the ARRL website, search up ARES, the A-R-E-S, Amateur Radio Emergency Services, the very first one that pops up, you can click on that, and it kind of walks you through the different rankings, different levels. You have a, get a better understanding of what public service events are. Ask a lot of questions. There's people out there who have, maybe they're not volunteering now, but they've done it in the past and or know the area or have participated in the race itself. But ask a lot of questions, and don't be afraid of what you're asking. Everyone in this hobby is wonderful about understanding that we all started out at the beginning. We all knew nothing when we started. I'm I'm a little bit on the, oh, I'm not OCD, but I really do like to have the papers in front of me. And so when I hear of an event going on, I'll pull up that fundraiser. I'll pull up a previous race that was run in that area and just kind of look at it and see oh, that's run in the morning, and okay, that one's an all-day event. You know, and I hear about what the event is going on. I do a little bit of research on my own so that I'm not blindsided by the fact, oh, these are four-hour shifts instead of two-hour shifts. Um, and what I mean by that is very rarely are you expected to do the entire day of an event by yourself. Most of the time they break it up because they know we, you know, everybody's got a life and you can't always help or volunteer for the entire event. Okay, I have one more question. You mentioned that public service is your favorite thing to do in amateur radio. There's so much to do in amateur radio. What is it about public service that makes it your favorite thing? Okay, we are out standing on the road. We've got a vest on. We're the person, the participants in the event. They are looking, just not necessarily looking for us, but they make note of that we're there. They know that they are safe, that if they wipe out, if they get down the wrong path, routed differently, if they feel sick, they know there's someone there to help them, and they are so appreciative of that. You can be standing on your station watching the runners go by, and they will stop and thank us because they are we are taking care of them. We have one here called the IT100. It's a 100-mile race. It's run all through the night, and 
I really like that when the athletes, they are incredible people to me, and yet they're stopping and thanking us for helping them. It's, it's such a wonderful feeling to know that we can do that for them. I can't run a race. <laughs> I can't bandage a leg, but I can do this for them. Well, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Brenda, for taking the time to, to talk to me about what it is about Ham Radio Public Service that you enjoy and how newcomers to it can get involved. I think everyone should try it. I think you'll like it, but I think everyone should at least try it. It's an experience, definitely an experience. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the On the Air podcast, which took a deeper dive into material from the January-February 2020 issue of On the Air magazine. The On the Air podcast will be back in March to give you a closer look at articles found in the March-April 2020 issue of the magazine. In the meantime, feel free to send comments about On the Air to ota at arrl.org, read our blog at arrl.org slash ota hyphen blog, or learn more about ARRL membership at arrl.org. Until next time, I'm your host, Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73.